If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you're new with us today, we, we do expository preaching, which means we open up a text and, and I explain it and apply it. And the Holy Spirit applies it to your own hearts. And normally we go through books of the Bible. We've been, been in the Gospel of Luke. And, and now we're doing a, a short expository series just on a few verses in Romans. Before we go to the next book of the Bible, I, I want to take this wonderful passage in Romans 8, 28 through 30, and especially verses 29 and 30, and, and open them up one word at a time there. Because as Paul often does, he packs a lot of theology into one word. And one phrase, and one sentence, and one paragraph. I want us to consider this, this teaching that he gives us here in Romans 8, 29, and 30, what I've called the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. And, and we're looking at part two this week, divine calling. Divine calling. So let me read the passage for you. I'll start in 28. But our focus will be on the word call there in verse 30. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Last week we spoke of foreknowledge and predestination. Grouped together, it's describing that doctrine we call election. God's sovereign election. And if you weren't here with us last week, I I suggest you go back and listen to that message. and, And you'll see there that I said, foreknowledge is not God looking into the future to learn something. God knows all things. He doesn't have to learn anything. It's really not God looking into the future to learn anything, but God decided exactly whom he would love. Before anything was put together, he said, I will love these people. For loved, I think, is a better translation. And I justified that by looking at other passages where a man knows his wife and Christ knows his sheep. And then there's predestined, where God literally marks out beforehand what will happen in a person's life. That's what the word means. We looked at some verses on that as well. And Paul says, those whom God foreloved and those whom God predestined, Next are also those whom God calls. Those whom God has already called if they're already saved. Those whom God will call in the future if they're yet to be saved. So that is our focus here today. And all of this, by the way, is to back up what he said in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Don't you want to be comforted? Don't you want to know that all the things that are happening in your life, good or bad, especially the bad, don't you want to know and be comforted that it's for your good and for God's ultimate glory? Those who are called, those whom God has called are working all things for their good. And he backs that up now with 29 and 30 and saying, the reason you can be comforted is because it starts in eternity past, it follows through all the way into eternity future with glorification. And what we see here in this passage is five massive pillars that support this promise in in 8.28. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Five links in the chain. So we considered the first two links last week. They're closely connected. Foreknowledge, God's electing love, predestination, that marking out beforehand what would happen to God's elect. You know, this is a very important doctrine here that we're considering, both last week and this week. Too many times it's skipped over in churches, in studies of Romans even. God's sovereignty in the salvation of men and of women and of children. The doctrines of God's sovereign grace. It's where the rubber meets the road on your theology of who God is, who man is, your theology of salvation. We don't get to determine what the Bible says on these things. We just look to God's word and try to figure out what he is saying in Scripture. Steve Lawson, great expository preacher, professor of mine in seminary even, he said that this issue of God's sovereignty and salvation here is the continental divide of all theology. And what he means is there's a continental divide in in North America. And and if a 
a drop of rain falls on the west side of that divide, it will end up in the Pacific Ocean. And if it falls on the east side of the Continental Divide, that water will end up in the Atlantic Ocean. And where you land on this subject, he said, is like that. It's a Continental Divide of so much in the Christian life and in church life and in what you believe. He goes on to say, quote, One drop of man-centered thought runs down one side of the theological divide into creeks and streams and rivers, ultimately to, to pour into an ocean of man-centered worship, living, and ministry. Yet conversely, one drop of God-centered truth flows down the opposite side of the mountain. Such biblical truth empties into an ocean of God-centered worship, living, and ministry. So today I want to unpack that third link in the chain and show you how divine calling is indeed God's sovereign plan continued from predestination. In fact, this whole chain is all God's work. This whole chain is all God's work. And where we land on this theologically will determine so much about the Christian life and our church. If I was to summarize it in a question, the question is this. How do you come to Christ? And why do you come to Christ? Really that question of why. Why is it ultimately that you even came to Christ to begin with? And there's been various views in history. I'll just summarize quickly before we go into the, into the verse. But the Pelagians, Pelagians said that we don't have a sin nature. And so Pelagius and his followers said that we don't have a sin nature. It doesn't affect our mind. So the natural state of every human being is neutral. You know, the world believes this today, that man is born neutral that you get to decide exactly where you're going to end up. And it's all about your willpower and your abilities. Because man is born with a clean slate. And they, they said that you don't even have to read your Bible. You don't have to hear the gospel. You can actually earn God's grace. Now, after that came the semi-Pelagians, because the Pelagians were called heretics. They were completely uh, denied as believers. And tr- rightly so, the semi-Pelagians then, though, they come along and they say, well, you know, we're not, we're not completely dead. We're just sick. Man's just sick. And if he has enough help, he can get there on his own. Today, uh, what's called Arminianism is very popular. Arminianism it states that uh, the natural state of human beings is totally fallen, but God's given to all people enough grace so they can choose to come to Christ of their own free will. Then uh, opposite that is the Calvinist view that God sovereignly chooses and brings people to Christ by His grace alone. It's this doctrine that came about in the Reformation. It, it comes from Scripture, but it was lost for so long, and they brought it back in the Reformation. Sola gratia, by God's grace alone, is how we come to Christ. So the Bible has a lot to say on this. I want to turn away now from church history, a, a great subject, but let's look at God's Word and see what it says. And you'll see that we're going to cover three main points this morning. The need for this divine effectual calling, the act of effectual calling, and the application of effectual calling. So the need, the act, the application. First, let's look at the need. And the need to summarize is simply this. Without God's divine calling, man would be lost forever. Man would be lost forever and no one would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a doctrine we should fight against because if if it didn't happen this way, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. And Scripture proves this to us over and over. It it really just beats down our pride of thinking that we can save ourselves. Without God's divine calling, we would be lost forever and no one would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that this happens for a couple of reasons. First of all, man's totally unwilling. Totally unwilling to come to Christ in faith and repentance. Why? Due to an evil heart. Due to an evil heart inherited from Adam. It's often called total depravity. That, that mankind, because of Adam's fall and sin, that all mankind since then has inherited that sin nature. And that, that we're born with a sin nature that has a desire to do evil. Not the worst evil you could do. Not everybody here is going to be Hitler or a serial killer, of course. But that everything in your body is totally bent on giving yourself desires that you want and pleasure that you want. It's focused on self. That's why Jesus said you must deny yourself and follow me. Because those two things don't go together. Living for self and living for Christ do not go together. So man's totally depraved, unwilling to come to Christ due to an evil inherited sin nature. Genesis 6, 5. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right there in Genesis 6-5, before the flood even. One of the reasons God brings about the flood is because man's heart is only evil continually. There was one family, Noah and his family, that followed God. And that was it. And that was only because of God's grace, of course. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And that's a hard one to take. This describes all of us at our natural state. Even if you're in Christ, this describes who you were before you came to Christ. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. But certainly that must be talking about other people, right? It can't be talking about me and you. I mean, some of us, certainly some of us, desire to do good. I mean, we all can think of an unbeliever that's done good things in their life. But Paul clears this up in Romans 3. He quotes from the Old Testament, of course, saying, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. No one is naturally seeking for God. People say they are. There are whole church movements designed uh, around this seeking for God, this seeker movement. Paul says no one naturally seeks for God. Jesus says, John 3, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So that's bad enough that we're, that we're depraved in our natural state, that we don't desire and are unable, unwilling to come to God. But also man is, is totally unable to come to Christ in faith and repentance due to spiritual blindness. So we're born with a sin nature and we also have spiritual blindness. We're born with a desire to do evil, but we also can't even see the goodness of God right in front of us. John 6, 44. This is a key passage right here. No one, Jesus says, not one person can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not one. No one's coming to Christ unless the Father draws him. We'll come back to that one. Why is it that people are not able to come to Jesus on their own? What is it that's stopping them? Well, sin has corrupted their minds. Go with me to, second, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 6 and following. 1 Corinthians 2. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you there underneath the chair. This, this teaching is all over Scripture that we cannot come to Christ of our own free ability and power. Since corrupted our minds. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So God's predestined the wisdom of the gospel and, and how we would bring all of this about. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now he's going to explain this a little bit more. He says in verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So that anything of of God's wisdom, the gospel, everything that we learn in Scripture has to be revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 11, For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. We don't know the thoughts of God. The Spirit has to reveal them to us. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. God's given us His Spirit so we can know the things that are given to us, all recorded in Scripture for us now, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You've got to have the Spirit to believe the Gospel. The Spirit has to work in your heart and call you and draw you. But, verse 14, but a natural man 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man, a man in his natural state, does not accept it. He doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't accept the things which the apostles preach, the gospel which we preach. The natural man does not accept it. He doesn't want to. Why? For they are foolishness to him. That's foolishness. The gospel's foolishness to the world. And there's an and there. That means the second thing is coming. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He doesn't want to, and he couldn't even if he wanted to. Because it's spiritually appraised. God has set it up so the Spirit has to reveal it. The Spirit has to work in a person's heart so that they can believe and know these things. It's spiritually appraised. Not only that, I mean, that's bad enough. It just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I just read it to you. You might recall what I said there in chapter 4, starting in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So it's hidden. It's hidden to those who are going to perish and those who are going to be in eternity in hell. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only do we have a sin nature, not only do we not in our natural state want to come to Christ, we're not able to come to Christ And Satan has blinded the minds of people so they don't see the truth of the glory of Christ. Did you have the power to undo the binding action of the devil before you believed? But if you think, I did it all. You know, God just provided a way and then I did it. You would have to change your heart. You would have to change your desire, your will. You would have to change your ability. And then you have to take Satan's veil off of your eyes so that you could see. No, we're dead in sin. We are dead in sin. We we cannot do anything without God. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not just a little bit sick, but actually dead. Under the ground, in the tomb. Dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. When you were an unbeliever, if you're saved today, you probably didn't think about it, but you were just following the world. You were just following Satan. You were following your own desires. That's what Paul says here. You formerly walked according to the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's all throughout the Bible. It, it really crushes man's sinful pride on this issue. I'll give you a Romans 1, 21 and 22. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Let's go back to Romans 8. And I want you to see the beginning of Romans 8 there. Go to Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 7. And we, we see here what Paul said just before our passage we're reading later in 29 and 30. Look what he says in, in 8, 7. We'll go back and start in 6 so you get the context. Romans 8, 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. A mind that's set on the flesh, on your own desires, it's, it's against God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is the natural state of man. Those who are in their natural state... They can't please God. They don't even put themselves under the law. And and obeying God is what pleases them. And and only believers can do that because they've got a new heart. And and the natural man can't do it. Fleshly man cannot please God. He is unable completely. Sin, Sin controls every part of an unbeliever, including his heart, his mind, his will. He's spiritually dead. That's what it means to be totally depraved. Spiritually dead and blind and unable to obey, unable to believe, unable to repent. Man doesn't have that ability. We cannot claim that. That's what Paul means in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's all by God's grace. It's all by God's grace. Every thought, every word, every action as an unbeliever, it flows from an evil heart. It's a sinful desire not to please God, but to please ourselves. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, we see this lived out over and over and over. 
That's why Jesus said in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's got to be born again. He's got to have a new heart. He's got to be regenerated. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, unless one has been cleansed and born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's the need for God's divine calling. God must give a new heart. He must give new eyes to see, new ears to hear. What a need we have for God's mercy and grace. This isn't a doctrine to to put off here, this this need for effectual calling. It's not one that we want to resist. It's what the Bible teaches. What a need we have for God's mercy. Paul says those things in the Bible to drive us to God's grace. We are poor, blind beggars, and we're just waiting We're waiting for God to open the eyes of our hearts so we can believe, so we can come to Him. He's got to do that. We cannot. If we ever want to be converted, we we have to have our sinful hearts converted, regenerated. And we've got to see them, first of all, as they truly are. They're hardened with sin. They're hardened with sin. You, You cannot come to God boasting. You cannot come to God boasting and say, look what I've done for you, God. I believed on Jesus and I turned from my sin. No, Paul says, so that no man may boast. It's by God's grace alone. If you're a believer here today, if you're truly regenerate, if you have seen this truth lived out, I mean, you need to to praise God that he's changed your heart. You need to remember that it's by faith alone and Christ alone, yes, but by God's grace alone. He's the one who enables all of that to happen. So that's the need. We we see a lot of passages in Scripture indicating the need for divine calling, but, but what exactly is it? Well, let's look at, secondly, the act of divine calling. The act of divine calling. This is simply that God saves his elect through the divine act of summoning them, calling out to their hearts to come to Christ and exercise faith and repentance. He calls out to their heart through the Spirit's power so that they will come to Christ. Is that in the Bible? That God is doing all of that first before we have faith and repentance? Well, it is. We, we need to understand, first of all, there's a couple of different ways that the word calling, our English word calling, is used in the Bible. There's a couple of callings in the Bible. First of all, there's God's general external call. It's just what it sounds like. It's calling out to people to come to Christ. And then secondly, there's God's internal effectual call. That's what we're talking about in the sermon today. So God's general call, that's when you, you go out and you proclaim the gospel. That's proclaiming the truth of God's word about salvation and forgiveness and repentance. It's a free offer of the gospel. Everyone's invited. We plead with them. We urge them to come to Christ. We're calling them to come to Christ. We see Jesus do this in the gospels. And he even says, many are called. Many are called. Many people hear his message and they're called with a voice going out proclaiming the gospel. But he says, few are chosen. Many are called. Few are chosen. Many hear, but not all believe. The few that are chosen will believe. So we're really looking at that chosen part, but we're, we're fleshing it out now, past the chosen, down to the calling, in this five links of the chain. And we're talking about the effectual call. You know what effectual means? It means that it is successful for its design purpose, for the intent which it was given. In other words, it will always have its effect accomplished. It's a specific call. The general call goes out to everyone. The divine call is specific. It goes to those whom God has desired it to go to. It's personal. It's not going to a group, but it's going individually to each person, and it's always successful. People can hear the gospel and the general call, and they can reject it and walk away and never believe. You have the divine call upon your heart. You will believe. You will believe. And I'll show you that in Scripture. Jesus calls his own sheep by name, and they hear his voice, and they come to him. The reason they come is because he's effectually called them. They hear his voice, and they come. Why? Because he knows them by name. He already knows them. He already has this personal choosing of them and calling of them. So when they hear, they come. Sometimes you'll see other words and phrases in the Bible for effectual calling. Regeneration, circumcision of the heart, being drawn to Christ, the new birth, being born again, being made alive, given a heart of flesh, opening the heart, being called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Made a new creation. 
I love that one. When my brother got baptized, I got to go and be there for that. And he had this shirt on, said a new creation in Christ. Such a beautiful picture of what happens when we're converted. Baptism symbolizes that, but it happens when God changes our heart. He makes us a new creation. We're, we're being made a new creation in Christ. We don't make ourselves a new creation. While many people hear that general call, only the elect receive the effectual call. Look back at Romans 8.30. Paul's clearly setting up a chain here. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Everyone agrees that justification is in the Bible. There it is. But also callings in the Bible and also predestinations in the Bible right here. And they're linked up. You see that? He says, all those God predestined are called. All of them are effectually called. All those who are called must have faith because he says here they are justified. You can't be justified without faith. So you're called, you have faith, you're justified. No one's dropping out. All of those who fit one group are also the same ones in the next group are also the same ones in the next group. You don't get off the train whenever you want. And I think I'll get off at justification, you know, not be glorified. You can't do that. No one slips out. That, that's the comfort that he's giving us here in Romans 8. It's comforting because you can't lose your salvation. In Acts 13, you know, Paul, he, he goes into Pisidian Antioch. When a group of Gentiles there heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. That's what he says. It's because they'd been appointed that they believe. In other words, they can't take credit. They can't boast. God has broken that bondage of sin. Broken and removed the blindness of Satan. That's what it means. They've had new heart and new creation. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, those who God has called their hearts, both Jews and Greeks, that message is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's foolishness unless you're called. And then it turns into, wow, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This call means that the salvation is all of God. I mean, it's, it's there in Scripture, I think, to remind us not to be prideful, not to be boastful, and to give us comfort. To give us comfort. We, we can't lose it because God has done it. God has called us. Remember that passage where I said Jesus in John 6? He, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws that person to Christ. And that's the same person that will be raised up at the resurrection. The word draw here, the word draw is not a gentle urging. It's not, please will you come. No, that, that would be more of the, the external gospel call. But this word right here in Greek means to haul, to pull, to drag in. It's used later in John, the same book, to speak of uh, two of the disciples hauling in their fishing nets. They throw out their fishing nets and they drag them in. In other words, God does all the work in calling. He does all the work in, in drawing men and women to himself. The nets don't drag themselves to shore. The same word used for nets is that someone's dragging that net in. God's dragging, drawing people to Christ. Sinners are never going to pull themselves to Christ without God doing it. We're passive. We're passing in, in divine calling. We're not passive in faith and repentance. But don't get that confused with this doctrine of God's calling, which happens first. It's hidden. We can't see it. We usually don't even know about it until after we're saved. These things are written to believers. You don't know about it. You don't say, I think God's divinely calling me. He has called you. You will have faith and repentance. We're passive. Did you, did you take your heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh? If you're a believer today, did you make yourself become born again? beautiful doctrine that God does this. He's the only one that can do it. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that God rides forth. I mean, listen to how he describes this. God rides forth, conquering in the chariot of his gospel. He conquers the pride of the heart. He makes the will, which stood out as a, as a fort. 
He makes that fort to yield and to stoop to his grace. He makes the stony heart bleed. Oh, it is a mighty call. Praise the Lord he does that. Because if it was up to me, I would have just resisted. You know, when Lazarus went into the tomb and he got raised from the dead, did, did Lazarus call himself to come out of the tomb? Did he say to himself, I'll decide to come forth? Or did Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth? I mean, a great analogy in scripture here of what that looks like to be called from the dead. Physically, he was dead. Christ called him to life. It happened immediately. Spiritually, we're dead. God calls our hearts. We have faith and I have a new heart immediately. We're spiritually alive immediately. Acts 16, that woman named Lydia who was dying the, the purple fabrics down by the river. She already had heard of God through the Jews. She was listening to Paul preach. And it says in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Her heart was closed. She had heard of God. She, she went to synagogue and, and somehow worshipped God, however that happened for a woman in that day. But her heart was not open to the gospel until Paul shows up and he proclaims the gospel and the Lord opened her heart to respond. She could not respond unless the Lord had opened her heart first. That's the theology there. Philippians 1, But it has been granted for Christ's sake. It has been granted to you for Christ's sake. What? Not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Paul just slips that little phrase about believing in there. He's talking about suffering. It's been granted that you will suffer. Have comfort in your suffering. And by the way, God also granted you the ability to believe. It's been granted for the sake of Christ. Galatians 1, Paul says that God set him apart from his mother's womb and called him through his grace. God set him apart. God had chosen to save him, and eventually calls Paul to believe. Was Paul out looking? Was Paul on the road to Damascus looking for Christ? Was he seeking Christ? He was seeking to put believers to death. And what happened? Christ showed up, spoke to him. God put the call on his heart. The Holy Spirit regenerated his heart. Immediately he believed. Immediately. So what is divine calling? Here's a, here's a good theological definition. It's the immediate. The immediate. It, it doesn't happen over time. It's the immediate and instantaneous divine summons of God the Father and the work of God the Holy Spirit. It's immediate. It's instantaneous. and involves God the Father and involves the Holy Spirit by which man's mind is savingly enlightened to understand the gospel. Savingly enlightened to understand the gospel. The Father's working. The Spirit's working. He opens our mind, our hearts, so that we can, we can see to understand the gospel. And also, man's will is completely empowered. Now we have a desire to believe. We have a desire to, to move in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's immediate, it's instantaneous. The Father, the Spirit, it, it changes man's mind to understand the gospel. changes man's will to be empowered, to believe, and it moves us to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful doctrine in Scripture. We shouldn't resist election, predestination, and divine calling. It's there, Paul says, for our comfort. It's there for our comfort. Now, there's a lot of objections to these teachings. If you've been around and heard these doctrines before, you've probably, you've probably run into some objections. I'm going to give you the top three. Man is responsible to believe. The objection goes. But since you're saying God does all the work, you're saying man's faith is pointless. In other words, if God's doing the calling on the heart, then our faith, what's, what's the point of our faith? In other words, if you believe this, you're denying that we have to have saving faith. Well, faith is necessary for justification. Romans 4 has already made that clear. So, so Paul's not contradicting himself when he teaches this doctrine later in Romans 8. But where does that faith come from? But where does faith come from? If mankind's unable to have faith due to his sin nature, how does he first believe? How does he first believe? By God's grace. God's grace is what saves. Again, I'll, I'll read it to you this time, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What did it? God's grace. 
What did he do? He saved. How did he do it? Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. God's grace, he does the saving. He does it through faith. And even faith and all those things he just mentioned are the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift. God's granting faith. Who has saved us? Who's called us with a holy calling? God has. It's not according to our works, but according, 2 Timothy 1.9, according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It doesn't do away with faith. God is working through our faith. It's like prayer. God, God's sovereign and will do what he wants, so why do you pray? Well, God told us to pray, and he also said he works through our prayers. He's already decided what to do in all of history, but he told us to pray, and he wants us to pray, and he answers our prayers and works through our prayers. It's no different, really. God's grace is sovereign over all things. If we brought about our faith and we brought about our repentance and our own power, then we would have something to boast about. But Romans eleven six, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You get to choose. You, you try to be saved, you can try it with works. Not going to happen. Or God's grace will save you. That's it. You don't even get to choose God's grace. God determines who receives his grace. So the, faith is important. You got to see Jesus put these two things together in Matthew eleven twenty five. Go to Matthew eleven twenty five. Uh, we're going to see Jesus put divine calling and telling people to have faith together here. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, "I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants." You see what he's praying there? He's saying that God is hidden. The truth of the gospel from people, from some people, those who think they're wise in their own power and intelligent in their own abilities. And he's revealed them to infants. He's not talking about literally infants, but people who are are not wise according to the world. People who are not intelligent according to the world. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So you want to get to the Father, you go to the Son. How do people know the Son? Well, the Son wills. He decides who to reveal the Father to. Now look at verse 28. So he's praying this probably publicly here. And then he looks up and says what? Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come have faith, he says. Come to me and have faith, and you'll receive all of these burdens taken away from you. You see what he just did? He prayed God for God's election and divine calling, and then he turned around and told people, come to me, freely come to me, he says. But this teaching, it denies faith. No, it doesn't because Jesus said, come to me. We do have to have faith. It's just that the outward call of the gospel to everyone is not the same thing as God's divine call upon the heart. Second objection you might run into that we hear, effectual calling can't be true. Can't be true because God doesn't force anyone into heaven. Remember that that verse about dragging, drawing, hauling people in like a net? That can't be true People say, because God does not force anyone into heaven. And I think this comes from a misunderstanding. Sometimes this doctrine is called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And it is true that God's grace cannot be resisted. Otherwise, it's not sovereign grace. It's not sovereign grace. It can't be resisted any more than predestination can be resisted or justification or glorification can be resisted. Just pick one of the five and tell me which one you can resist of your own power. You can resist being glorified as a believer. Why would you want to, first of all? But you can't, even if you did. But more importantly here, no one is forced to come because no one wants to come. You see the idea? The, the idea that it's dragging people is assuming that, that people want to come, some do, and some don't want to come, and God's doing the opposite of what they want and forcing them. 
No one wants to come unless they've first been called. And when they've been called, they want to come. Do you see? The, the call itself affects what it demands, which is faith in Jesus. The effectual calling conquers the resistance of a sinful person. It changes their heart. They want to come. God calls your heart. You want to come. Who would be upset that they were saved? God, why'd you save me? I can't believe you saved me. How could you do that? If you're, if you're regenerate, you, you love it. Now, now you might get depressed and sad that you're sinning, but that's God's grace again. How could you save a sinner like me? That's what you need to say to God. That's what you need to pray. How could you do this, God? But, but that's not resisting it. That's not saying, I wish you'd have never saved me. That's just begging God to continue to sanctify you. No one's forced to come because no one wants to come unless they've first been called. No one has ever been brought kicking and screaming into heaven. It doesn't happen. Because if they're there, they've been called. And if they've been called, their heart's been changed. They want to be there. They want to be there. Man's still responsible to, to come and have faith. But, but none would come unless God the Holy Spirit first moved in the hearts. One, one theologian, a Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, said that the God's effectual calling is so powerful that it cannot be conquered, and yet it's so loving that it excludes all force. When it happens, it's not forceful. It's God's love calling and bringing when I, when I take one of my children and I, and I take them up to bed when they've already fallen asleep, that's, that's love. They're not probably going to wake up and get mad at me for moving in the bed. I mean, maybe they're, they're born with a sin nature. We, we don't resist it because we have a new heart. C.S. Lewis said the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Third objection I'll give you is it makes God unjust. It makes God unjust, they say, because he's expecting sinners to believe when he knows they're not able to do so. This is a big one. I mean, God's calling everyone to do something, but only some can do it. Only some can do it. Well, we've already seen Jesus do that very thing. Praise God for, for electing and calling some and then telling everybody to come. So there's not a contradiction there. But later in Romans, we're back in Romans now. Later in Romans, Paul, Paul addresses this specific issue. And he doesn't tell us everything we want to know. Because we don't know everything God knows. But he does address this. Romans 9, 14. This person has, this, this objector to Paul has been saying, if I can't come because of my sin, how can, he, how can he accuse me? It's not my fault, in other words. And in verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Then he goes on to quote scripture about Pharaoh. And he goes on through the whole chapter 9 dealing with this issue. May it never be that we accuse God of injustice just because we don't understand how to put together man's responsibility and God's sovereign calling. It's not our job to put it together. As a believer, we're called to believe what's in scripture. And we, we work with what we have. And we get as close as we can. And then at some point, we just say, you know what? I'm not going to resist it. I'm going to believe it. God will grow me into understanding it better as I grow as a Christian. You know what he's saying? There's no injustice with God. Either, either man gets justice. What's justice? You're a sinner. You're going to hell. Or man gets grace. You're a sinner. You're saved by grace. You're going to heaven. But there's no injustice. There's either justice. R.C. Sproul used to always say that. It sticks in my head. There's either justice or grace. There's no injustice with God. It would be technically just and fair if God would not save anyone, but it's divine grace that he saves even one person, and he's saving an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You can have fairness, you can have justice, or you can have grace. Effectual cause, some of the most loving things that God does on behalf of his elect. You and I would not be a Christian here today if God didn't do this. So that's the act. Thirdly, the application. We've got to do something as we learn this doctrine. This is not just for you to go and, and debate it out with somebody else. There's a purpose here. There's a reason it's in Scripture. How should we, as believers, apply this doctrine? We see it in Scripture. God's opened our eyes to that truth. He's illuminated the Scriptures for us. What do we do with it? How do we apply it? Well, first of all, comfort and assurance to believers. We should respond with comfort and assurance. 
That's what he's doing here. He's given us comfort and assurance. That's Romans 8, 29, all the way through the end of Romans 8. Verse 38, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because those who are in Christ have been foreknown, foreloved. They've, they've been chosen, predestined. They, they've been called divinely. They've already been justified. They will be glorified. There's no losing it if you have it. The only question is if you have it, if you have actually been saved. It's not, is God going to drop us out of the chain? It's comforting to believers. If God is for us, who can be against us? Secondly, it's a reason to praise God. It's a reason to praise God. When I first learned of these doctrines, I was seven years, eight years a Christian. I got down on my knees every day for months in tears, just telling God, thank you. Before, I thought I had done something. And I was thankful, but I was a lot more thankful when I learned this. Because it wasn't because of me at all. God didn't have to choose me. And he did. And I thanked him. Second, Second Thessalonians ties this up with what Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. Beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. God chose you from the beginning. He chose you to be saved, sanctified, have the Spirit, and come to faith in the truth. Salvation is all of God. So we've got to praise Him. We've got to be thankful for this and praise Him. Have you thanked Him today, if you're a believer? Have you thanked Him today? Do you thank Him regularly in prayer for this? Do you spend time debating the doctrine all the time, election and predestination? Or do you spend more time in prayer thanking God for this? Sometimes we have to deal with this. If other people want to see it, we got to show them. Sometimes they don't agree and we, we might get into a debate, but we got to spend a lot more time thanking God for it. What are you arguing about it? Thirdly, a reason for evangelism. A reason for evangelism. I mentioned last week uh, that great evangelist, George Whitfield. He believed this. In fact, that was his most popular sermon. You must be born again. You must be born again. He preached it everywhere. He drew... In the 1700s in America, in the late 1700s, he drew thousands, 30, 40,000. One lady said, why do you keep preaching? We must be born again. He said, because you must be born again. I mean, he just preached the sermon from Jesus. Evangelism is essential for people to come to Christ and be saved because the external call must go out. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they call upon him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? This is the same Paul that just talked about predestination and calling. And two chapters later, he's saying, we've got to send out people to proclaim the gospel. And you've got to go out and proclaim the gospel. But the success is not dependent on us. It's not up to me. It's not up to me. It's actually a reason to evangelize that God has chosen his elect. I mentioned another great famous missionary who started the missionary movement, the modern missionary movement. Why? Because he knew in India, God had chosen people there. Because God said, from out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So he said, i got to go. Because they've got to hear the message. So God could work through that message and save them. We don't have to use gimmicks. We don't have to use worldly tactics. God will do the work. We just proclaim it faithfully. Proclaim the gospel faithfully. One time a church was giving away a free car to anyone who would show up that day at the service and register. I think it was Mother's Day. And if you didn't win the car, you might win a, a bunch of bicycles on the stage. And the reasoning was we can get more people to come in and they can hear the gospel. Maybe they'll believe. God doesn't need that. He doesn't need it. He used a bunch of dusty, old, stinky fishermen to take the gospel out. And Paul had some problem with his eye and he wasn't even an eloquent speaker and maybe his face wasn't all perfect and he said, look, I, I'm, not even, I'm not even a great speaker with my words, but I proclaim Christ and him crucified, and he got the gospel right, because gimmicks aren't needed. This divine calling is a reason for evangelism. And then lastly, application is a reason for holy living. That's a reason for holy living. Paul cites this. Peter cites this. Let me give you one from Ephesians 4. In fact, Ephesians 1 through 3 is about God's sovereignty and salvation. The first three chapters. We'll be starting on that in the fall. In September, we'll start on Ephesians 1. 
The first three chapters are about God's sovereignty. And then he switches in chapter four, four through six, is about applying this now, applying it. And here's how he starts that section. Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. God has called you and he's changed your heart and he saved you. You need to walk in that manner. Live a holy life. That's what Paul's saying. And he spends the next three chapters explaining what that looks like. So this doctrine is a, a reason for holy living. You've got to ask yourself, do I walk in a way that, that shines forth the gospel to the world? Uh, am I living in such a way that people know I'm a Christian? Because I'm living in a way that's worthy of my calling? You don't earn your calling. You've already been called. Now live according to that. That's what he's getting at. We must read the word regularly with the purpose to believe what it says. We must be doers of the word, not hearers only. We've got to believe these things because they're in the scriptures. We've got to apply them to our life. It's the doctrine of God's divine, effectual calling. You did not make yourself a Christian. God did it. You exercise faith. You exercise repentance. But who ultimately gets the glory? Another Reformation saying, soli Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. If you haven't been effectually called, then it's not something you, you sit around wondering about. The Bible says, come to faith in Christ. Repent of your sins. This is for believers. This doctrine here is for believers to look back and be comforted. Unbelievers need to come to Christ and have faith. Ask that God would change your heart. Ask that God would help you to believe. But for those of us in Christ, this is amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sang it last week. That's what it's talking about in that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see because of God's amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for this amazing grace. Sometimes there's things in Scripture that are hard for us to accept. Sometimes it's hard for us to digest. It's clear, it's there. That we're called to believe it. We're called to live according to what you've taught us there. Let us be worthy in our life of that calling. Those of us who are believers, let us live out in such a way that people will see a difference. Remind us to tell others of this beautiful gospel. Remind us to be comforted by it, Lord. And just help us to love your word, to love Jesus so much that when he tells us what to do, We want to do it. Pray that you would grant us these things. In the name of our Savior, amen.